Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a 1995 Washington Post story led with a macabre account from the widow of Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner about how when her husband's bloody shirt was held up in court, his accused killer Mumiabu Jamal turned in his chair and smiled at her. It was an evocatively sinister report, which the paper printed, untroubled by the fact that court records showed that Abu Jamal wasn't in court when the shirt was displayed. ABC's investigative news show 2020 used all the techniques for their big 1998 piece on the conviction of Abu Jamal for Faulkner's killing, stating prosecution claims as facts— even when they were disputed by some of the prosecution's own witnesses, stressing how a defense witness admitted being intoxicated while omitting that prosecution witnesses said the same thing. At one point, actor and activist Ed Asner was quoted saying, no ballistic tests were done, which is pretty stupid. But then host ABC's Sam Donaldson's voiceover cut him off, saying, but ballistic tests were done referring to tests that suggested that the bullet that killed Faulkner might have been the same caliber as Abu Jamal's gun, but refraining from noting that tests had not, in fact, been done to determine whether that gun had fired the bullet or whether that gun had been fired at all, or if there were gunpowder residues on Abu Jamal's hands. No one paying attention was surprised when it was revealed that in a letter asking permission from the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections to interview Abu Jamal, a request that was denied, ABC noted that, quote, we are currently working in conjunction with Maureen Faulkner and the Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police. That kind of overt proud-of-it bias has shaped coverage of Mumia Abu Jamal's case from the outset and current mentions suggest that little has changed. Elite media will report without question a right-wing Senate candidate's tossed-off reference to Mumia as the face of unrepentant criminality, while, out of the other side of their mouths, respectfully noting how Brown University is acquiring the papers of Mumia as he's an acknowledged representative of the serious problem of mass incarceration— and his communications are deemed historically important. Meanwhile, Mumia's chances for a new trial, based on significant new evidence, were shot down summarily this week. But a glance at national media coverage as we tape on October 27th would tell you, well, nothing about that. Counterspin got an update and a reminder of the real life versus the media story of Mumia Abu-Jamal from Noel Hanrahan, legal director at Prison Radio. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent media. After January 6, 2021, Amazon issued a righteous declaration that they would stop contributing to members of Congress who were part of a, quote, unacceptable attempt to undermine a legitimate democratic process, close quote. But 
in September 2022, as popular information reported, the Amazon PAC donated $17,500 to nine members of the House whose conduct they had previously deemed unacceptable. Amazon had pledged to discuss concerns directly with members who voted to overturn the election and evaluate their responses before donating again. There is zero indication that any conversations occurred, and none of the nine members who received donations from Amazon last month has expressed any regret for their vote on January 6th. In response to Popular Information's request for comment, Amazon sent a statement saying, Oh my gosh, you fell for that? Oh, no, wait, they sent a statement saying, quote, When we announced shortly after the attack on the Capitol in January 2021 that we would suspend donations to members of Congress who voted against certifying the results of the 2020 U.S. presidential election, it was not intended to be permanent. It's been more than 21 months since that suspension. And like a number of companies, we've resumed giving to some members. Close quote. Ah, the old 21 months clause. As popular information notes, ending the suspension of donations after 21 months is convenient, given that a congressional campaign cycle is 24 months and the need for cash increases as Election Day approaches. So, resuming donations to candidates that voted to overturn the 2020 election about six weeks before this Election Day means there was no practical impact to Amazon's suspension. And October 26th marked one year since President Biden nominated Gigi Sohn to the Federal Communications Commission. Since then, as the group Free Press notes, the FCC has remained deadlocked two to two on critical decisions about how phone, cable, and broadcast companies conduct their deeply influential business. While those deep-pocketed companies fight tooth and nail to keep Sohn, an actual public interest advocate, out of the job of advocating for the public interest. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has a chance to call an important vote on this as soon as Congress returns. As Free Press notes, if the Senate genuinely wants to improve the lives of everyone who uses the Internet or cell phones or TV or radio, confirming Gigi Sohn before the clock runs out would be a simple and meaningful step. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. TV snake oil salesman and Republican Pennsylvania candidate Mehmet Oz began a recent debate with opponent John Fetterman with reference to Maureen Faulkner, the widow of Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner. Fetterman, Oz claimed, quote, has been trying to get as many murderers convicted and sentenced to life in prison out of jail as possible, including people who are similar to the man who murdered her husband, close quote. You could live in a cave and understand what Oz was trying to do there, 
but not everyone may recognize the particular dog whistle that is the reference to Mumiabu Jamal, convicted of fatally shooting Daniel Faulkner in 1983. That was the conviction. Mumiabu Jamal's conviction turned importantly on unreliable and conflicting testimony. It was significant that in taking up the case, elite news media went along for the ride and sometimes drove the car, encouraging acceptance, for instance, of the fact that, though the guard assigned to Mumia immediately after his arrest reported, quote, the Negro male made no statements, close quote, more to be believed was the other officer who subsequently came forward to say that actually, from his hospital bed, Mumia had declared, quote, I shot the mother and I hope he dies, close quote. Neither witness recantations or shifting accounts or evidence of jury purging in Mumia's case, nor the ever-expanding evidence of the terrible harms and injustices of the U.S. prison system generally, seem to be enough to shake some media from their investment in the narrative of the, quote, convicted cop killer, close quote, and the need to keep him not just behind bars, but also to keep him and people similar to him quiet to keep their voices and their lives out of public conversation and consideration. Noel Hanrahan is legal director at Prison Radio, where Mumia Abu-Jamal is lead correspondent. She joins us now by phone from Pennsylvania. Welcome back to Counterspin, Noel Hanrahan. Thank you for having me. Well, we can fill in context as we go, but please go ahead and start with what's uppermost. What is the latest legal development here. When a defendant is trying to overturn their conviction, and Mumi has been in for 42 years, when they protest their innocence, they have to go to the local trial court. That in Philadelphia is a common pleas court. Mumia had fantastic new critical evidence that was just discovered two years ago. There was a note in the prosecutor's files that said, where was my money from one of the key defendants? And this happened right after the trial implying that he was paid for his testimony. There were also notes saying that the other key witness, there are cases were being tracked and that none of the outstanding charges pending against this witness were ever prosecuted. The most dramatic evidence was evidence of taking blacks off of the jury and marks on the prosecutor's notes about the racial composition of the jury and also what was good and bad about which jury was selected, which juror, a white or a black juror. These were critical documents that many other people have gotten relief on. The jury notes are called the Batson claims, the U.S. constitutional claim, the suppression of evidence by the prosecution, burying evidence for 40 years is called a Brady claim. These have gotten relief from many other defendants. So now 42 years later, Mumia Abu-Jamal, was before Judge Lucretia Clemens in the Commons Police Court, and yesterday she denied all of his claims. She denied them procedurally. She refused to look at the merits of the body of evidence, and specifically this new evidence, and she denied it based on time bar, waiver, due diligence, and it's just like, it's the Post-Conviction Relief Act, which is 
there only to deny inmates access to the courts. So I was Mumia's producer. I've worked on Mumia with his books, many of his books, including his latest trilogy, Murder Incorporated, Empire, Genocide, and Manifest Destiny. We published those materials. About five years ago, I went to law school. I passed the bar in Pennsylvania. And it's unbelievable to see the level of stiff-arming accountability to the Frank Rizzo, Ed Rendell, Ron Castile era of literal torture of defendants and witnesses, like literally torture, not figuratively, literally. Think John Birch in Chicago. Like, think of the types of torture that have happened. That is typically what happened in the cases that I now investigate, innocence cases, prosecutorial misconduct cases, cases where this kind of information is available to these judges. I'll give you one clear example. One of the key witnesses, Robert Chobert, he was a cab driver driving without a license. He was on probation. He had thrown a Molotov cocktail into a school for pay. None of that material was before the jury. There were pictures. He said he was right behind the police car and saw yesterday the district attorney in this case, Grady Gravino, on the other side, said Robert Schobert looked up from his cab and saw Mumia shoot the officer. There are pictures that just came out a few years ago from the Philadelphia Bulletin that prove that were taken 10 minutes after the shooting that prove that Robert Schobert wasn't there. His cab was not behind the police car. Those photographs, the Polikoff photos, were denied into evidence. They were prevented from being put into the record. So we have Robert Chobert being presumed to be this like amazing witness with no problems. Literally, the photos prove he wasn't there. And nobody was, was able to be told to the jury that he was on probation for throwing a Molotov cocktail into a school for pay. He came back to McGill and asked, could he get his cab driver's license reinstated? No promise, he said. McGill said there was no promise of favoritism. Then we discovered two years ago his note in the prosecutor's files. Where is my money for testifying? So the context, right? So that's zooming in right now on what happened in court. The context, the things that haven't been given to the court before that haven't been considered today, we have a court reporter, Terry Moore Carter, saying in front of another judge, Richard Klein, that Albert Sabo said, I'm going to help them fry the N-word. He said this in the first week of the trial. Yeah. So this is America. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of trial that Mumia Abu-Jamal had, where his original trial judge, Albert, I'm going to help them fry the N-word, Sabo, presided. And so we have a judge now who is saying, none of this matters. He doesn't get relief. <laughs> and you have to wonder what would be lost on the part of journalists to re examine that, including re-examining their own role. What is it that they feel they're going to lose? You know, there were many voices at the time calling out corporate media's dereliction of duty. Fair was one of them. But, I mean, it was really, it was remarkable. When Albert Sabo was presiding over the 1995 evidentiary hearing, the Philadelphia Inquirer's headline was, Sabo must go. He's going to 
let Mumia off because he's so blatantly racist. The headline was, Sabo must go. That was the post. People know it. People know it. The Daily News. People know it. The courts know it. I interviewed Barbara McDermott, a criminal judge in the Homicide Division. She said Judge Sable was the most racist, sexist, and homophobic judge she'd ever met. Everyone knows. It's not unclear. They all know. They are preserving the system. So Larry Krasner, in an appeal four years ago, said if they undid all of Ron Castile, a racist DA's opinions and judgments, it would question the entire system. So they wanted to narrow it right. to a class of individuals, a smaller class that Momia was included in. So he's not willing. Who's not willing? They're not willing because the whole system would be called into question. Now, this is a system. You have to remember, this is a system that is built on black bodies. There's an assembly line of black bodies through the Juanita Kid Injustice Center at 13th and Locust that is paying for the Fraternal Order of Police overtime. So Larry Krasner said it in an Atlantic article. It's the linchpin. The majority white police force of 6,500 police officers, 6,500 retired officers, it is their pensions and it is their overtime to pay their Jersey mortgages. This is not me saying Jersey mortgages. This is the legal director of Kenyatta Johnson's office telling me, oh, yeah, we know why we can't do that. We know why we can't fix the potholes, because the police overtime is out of control, but, you know, they have to pay their Jersey mortgages. <laughs> and really at the last bump, you know, when they need to go for their pension, that's when all the overtime racks up. $50 million of overtime each year. That's the linchpin. That's the dynamic. It's commodifying poor people of color for the service of the white, marginally working class, middle class police officers. Well, and let me ask you about part of how they sell that narrative, which does have to do with news media. Folks who remember coverage of Mumia's original trial will remember how hard elite media went in on the idea not just of accepting all of the, you know, malfeasance and problems and and, and craziness around his case, but also there was a big overarching storyline about the idea that anybody who was incarcerated who was deemed political, anybody who was incarcerated who people on the outside were taking an interest in was to be silenced, right? And so even like a sympathetic piece from Philly's public TV station WHYY last year around protests around Mumia, they led with the idea that the case, quote, pitted supporters, including a long list of national and international celebrities, against police and their supporters who resent the attention, close quote, to the case. So it makes it media have tried to turn it into not the particular information about this case, which, as you've said, the kind of information that has come out would lead to freedom or to overturning of convictions in other cases. They've made it a kind of litmus test about celebrity interest in incarcerated people or about incarcerated people as issue rather than as human beings. Let me just say that's like inquirer light. 
Yeah. The real issue here, and I live in Philadelphia, is fear. Fear of the police. Yeah. William Marinmov knows better. The Pulitzer Prize winning journalists who live in this city, who have covered this city, they know and they are afraid. They are literally afraid. People don't realize that we have a classical radio station, WRTI in Philadelphia, associated with Temple, for one reason. Because overnight, they switched the switch and took off general public interest programming led by Democracy Now! One day, overnight, changed it to a classical radio station. That's why we have classical radio here in Philadelphia. Right. So they do it and they punish us. They punish the producers. They punish the journalists. You know, Lynn Washington can tell you everyone knows. That's the thing is the courts know, the journalists know. They know that this is a scandal, a scheme. They know that the police threats of violence are exactly what keeps people in line. They threaten your job and they threaten your life. Imagine if I had a news van and I painted it free mumia and I parked it on the streets of Philadelphia, it would be like a cop magnet to get destroyed, mm-hmm. blown up, torched. All my tires would be slashed. Well, you could just prove it and do it. It would happen. <laughs> you know, I mean, everyone knows it. Absolutely. They are terrified. Yep. People here are terrified of the police. And people who have jobs, who have comfortable livings, will not push the envelope. And that includes our editors of our major newspapers and the staff at WHYY. They will not challenge the status quo. They will not air Mumia's voice because there will be direct, both physical and economic penalties. And let me just spell out for listeners who don't remember, in 1994, NPR had plans to run a series of commentaries from Mumia, who was, after all, a journalist, a former head of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. They canceled that series. They said it was because he was so controversial and such a big story, such a big story that they then proceeded to do zero coverage for the following year. And then when, as you've just said, then when Democracy Now! was going to air those commentaries, Philadelphia's KRTI canceled not just Democracy Now!, but all of Pacifica News saying, quote, with the person in charge saying, quote, what's good enough for NPR is good enough for me, close quote. I was in Eileen Weiss's office, the executive director of All Things Considered, when she looked out the window and you could see the Capitol because her NPR office was right there. And she said, I never thought I would look to the Capitol and be censored. Yesterday, Bob Dole got up on the Senate floor and threatened our entire budget if we dared air this commentary. And she then turned to me and said, can you bring me a more acceptable commentator? Well, you know, folks don't know what happens behind the scenes, and I'm really appreciating this exposure. You know, folks think that, uh, some folks, I imagine, think that journalists make a decision. Who do we want to air? They put that person on, and then they deal with it. And it's not at all how it happens. But I want to bring us, for the for the final part of our conversation, to 
the other piece of that, because the efforts to silence, not just Mumia, but the efforts to silence and close off all of the perspectives of people who are incarcerated speak to the power of those perspectives, right? It speaks to why we emphatically need to hear them. And I just want to say, you know, despite the name, Prison Radio is a, is a, is a multimedia production um, studio. And the whole point is to add the voices of people most impacted by the prison industrial complex to our public conversation. And, you know, Mumia's case is an especially emphatic example of the lengths that um, powers that be, both legal, political, and media, will go to to squelch those voices. But we have work resisting that and countering that, and prison radio is part of that. And I just wonder if you'd like to talk a little bit about the project and, and why you do it. I first became recording Mumia, and I first heard a scratchy tape of his voice when we were covering the Robert Alden Harris execution in 1992 in California, and we were trying to get people on death row, there were 600 at the time, trying to get their voices into the mix. Look, if you can hear their last words dated by the warden, you can interview them. If we're going to kill them, we might, they have to be part of the story. Mm-hmm. And so I went and tried to get somebody from San Quentin, and I couldn't. But I had heard Mumia. He was in Pennsylvania. I went and I got him. Now, Mumia is especially difficult for the mainstream media to grasp. He's incredibly fluent in the King's English. He's actually fluent in French and German and conversational in Spanish. I mean, he's an incredible intellect, and he was trained in the black newsroom. If America is going to incarcerate 2.3 million, one out of every 100 U.S. citizens is in prison, that needs to be part of the story. And I have dedicated, you know, Prison Radio's work to bringing those voices on every topic into the public debate and dialogue. And we feel like it's critical that those voices are heard. We can't really cover the story. Like, as a journalist, if you're covering prisons, you really can't cover the story without that first person, without talking to the people that it directly impacts. You know, a lot of times... Even even my own stations at Pacifica would say, no, we're not going to touch that. Mm-hmm. No, we're not going to talk to homeless people. Mm-hmm. you got to talk to prisoners. You have to give them agency. Because a lot of the prisoners and a lot of the, the culture of imprisonment tells a deeper story about America. We're not going to get it if we don't go to the prisons and get those voices out. I've been doing it for 30 years. I became a lawyer and an investigator because it's not enough to just broadcast people's voices, we have to bring them home. Well, I'm going to end on that human note. We've been speaking with Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. You can find their work online at prisonradio.org. Noel Hanrahan, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. You're welcome. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. <laughs>